This is Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Our opening song is Calypso Jazz Improvisation by the Steel Band of Trinidad. Our show today is The Legacy of C.L.R. James. Best known for his path-breaking work on the Haitian Revolution, The Black Jacobins, published in 1938. Trinidadian C.L.R. James was often at the center of revolutionary politics and theory in the 20th century. A one-time Trotskyist and fully informed by a study of Marx, James's greatest work extends from beyond the boundaries of politics and reaches into an attention to and analysis of pop culture as it reveals the workings of our social order. From his insightful study of Melville's Moby Dick to his becoming one of the premier sports writers of his age through his writing on and love for cricket, as well as his fascination with movies and television. Scratch the surface of any important thinking from the 1930s through the late 70s, and you will find James has been there and influenced so many that came after him. We have three scholars with us today, each touching on aspects of CLR James' life and work. Paul Buell, Paul LeBlanc, and Lawrence Ware. Paul Buell is the authorized biographer of James, whose book, CLR James, The Artist as Revolutionary, was published in 1988 by Verso and just reissued with a foreword by Robin Kelly and an afterword by Buell and Lawrence Ware that seeks to situate James in a line that moves from the Black Panthers to the Black Lives Matter movement. Buell is the author and editor of many books who has in the last decade and more been editing and scripting graphic biographies and histories. He and Ware also collaborated on the young CLR James, a graphic treatment illustrated by Milton Knight. Paul LeBlanc is a professor of history at La Roche College in Pittsburgh, whose most recent books are October Song, Bolshevik Triumph, Communist Tragedy, 1917 to 1924, and Left Americana, The Radical Heart of U.S. History, both published by Haymarket. The essays in Left Americana elaborate the essential role of the political left in social movements and struggles of the past and present, highlighting influential individuals, including CLR James. And Lawrence Ware is co-director of the Africana Studies Program and teaching assistant professor and diversity coordinator in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Oklahoma. He's a contributing writer to Slate Magazine, The New York Times, and The Root. We'll first hear from Paul Buell on the life of CLR James. In 1967, Buell, along with his wife Mary Jo, founded and edited the journal Radical America. And it was through Radical America that James was reintroduced to the left. An entire issue was dedicated to James in 1970, creating the first anthology of his work to be published in the U.S. In our conversation, Buell demonstrates the depth and breadth of James's writing noting especially how his work draws attention to the ways racism and class struggle are deliberately entangled. We begin in Trinidad with the young CLR James. So let's go first to, uh, to you telling us a little bit about CLR James. Uh, well, CLR James is a person who's so unique that we can hardly find a, a category 
to fit him into. He's he's absolutely sui generis. He's born in 1901 in uh, a village in Trinidad. His father's a school teacher and a school administrator. And uh, James grows up and gets the classic English colonial education of uh, the classics and of 17th, 18th, and 19th century literature, and as history was written in those days. And so he is being prepared by his father as a bright young man to become a lawyer or a doctor or possibly a a non-white colonial politician. Big disappointment. He's drawn to the cricket field and becomes a cricket coach uh, informally. And uh, he emerges in the 1920s as a a school teacher with what essentially is a, a high school education and becomes more and more involved in a little literary circle avant-garde. He writes a novel about life in Trinidad. It's the, at that time, the first novel by a non-white person in, uh, mm. in the British Caribbean. Uh, and then he is drawn to Britain by the leading non-white cricket player of the time, Leary Constantine, also from Trinidad. And he becomes in Britain, a pop, very popular writer, a sports reporter on cricket for uh, the Manchester Guardian. Uh, and then he becomes deeply involved in politics, and he uh, supports the struggle of Ethiopians against Mussolini. He becomes a, a Trotskyist of sorts, uh, but most important, he writes a book called The Black Jacobins, which is the First, really serious treatment of the only successful slave revolt in just about the last 2,000 years. That is to say, the rise in Haiti of the black slave population against their colonial masters. And uh, it's a book that stands to this present day as reads like a novel and is a stunning history of uh, poor, uh, desperately poor, oppressed people rising up themselves, not waiting for someone else to do it for them and changing history in the process. Then he spent his 10 years in the United States as a sort of philosophical, political person. He's thrown out in 1951 because he was undocumented. He travels across the colonial world preaching uh, uh, revolt against the colonial authorities and is very influential in in many places, from uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah's Ghana to his own native Trinidad uh, to uh, a number of other uh, places in the world. He helps to train the new intellectuals and politicians who are rising to lead these revolts. And then he gets back in the States uh, in 1970, is permitted to come back, and he begins a life as senior savant, that is to say, the aged face of the Pan-African movement from the 1910s to uh, 1970. He looks as if he's 90 years old. Actually, he's only 70. He'd been in a serious accident. Uh, But he gives these incredibly brilliant lectures uh, throughout the English-speaking world and uh, wows young people and uh, impresses everyone as speaking this saga about Pan-Africanism and the, the struggle of the peasant uh, to gain political independence and, and identity and so forth. And then finally, he's uh, sort of collapsing in, in Britain in uh, old age in the 80s. And uh, someone on the street will say, C.L.R. James, the cricket man, because he's a, he's a sports commentator on television about uh, test cricket matches. That's how the public knows his voice. Mm. Uh, and before he dies... He's when he's weakening. Uh, I'm summoned 
to uh, write his uh, biography. And I managed to do it, and it's published, and I think he's dead uh, two months later at the age of 88. Mm. So you you obviously mentioned your book, that's uh, The Artist as Revolutionary. That's the subtitle, C.L.R. James, The Artist of as Revolutionary. That's out on Verso, right? It is out on Verso. A new edition has appeared with an introduction by forward by Robin Kelly and an, an afterward by myself and uh, Lawrence Ware. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, you say summoned. You'd already known James for some time at that point? Well, uh different radio show interviewer asked me uh, the other day how James was attractive to us of the new left generation. Mm -hmm. And I said that uh, there were two aged men who seemed to be so young in mind and so supportive of the struggles of the young that it was hard to believe that there was so much age difference between us. One was C.L.R. James, the other was Herbert Marcuse. Hmm. They spoke as if from a different world, you know, a 1940s, 1930s, even 1920s world. Uh, but they had a certain clarity of overview. They were both deep scholars of Hegel, among other things. They had a very wide, sweeping sense of history at large. Uh, they had both discovered in the Young Marks of 1844 economic philosophical manuscripts the idea of alienation. That is to say, it wasn't just economic suffering. It was the sense of alienation from oppressive class society, but also from the uh, oppressions of the workplace. Be his wages high or low, as Marx put it, alienation remains the same. This was a long way from socialists, communists, and liberals saying, if we put more food in the bellies of the workers, they'll surely be happy. Uh, James and Marcuse saw civilization in, in a severe crisis, and they urged support of young people taking direct action. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with Paul Buell about the life and works of the Marxist intellectual and pan-Africanist C.L.R. James, who is best known for his history of the Haitian Revolution, the Black Jacobins. So there's a, a point uh, in your book um, about uh, American Bolshevism, about um, uh, James being um, concerned with with having things being contextual, right? So you can't just translate Lenin into uh, whatever situation you're in, or you can't translate Marx as Marx into an American context. You have to you have to make it, you know, make the context itself be a part of the analysis. And this, uh, can you tell a little bit about uh, yeah, what that means? Uh, yeah, the, his difficulty, a difficulty that could not possibly be overcome is that he was part of a, a Trotskyist movement that peaked at 500 members, maybe, mm-hmm. uh, uh, at a time when the Communist Party was not only 50,000 members, but had influence in major industrial unions and, and fraternal societies. You could say that half a million people were following the Communist Party in, a, in, the, in the widest sense, so that the contrast is almost absurd. But he had these various ideas that he put forward, and they really germinated after the Second World War, just as things were closing in on the left. Uh, But uh, one key one was that contrary to American left history to that point, that uh, black people, African Americans, had a movement of their own. It would have to find its own sense 
within the, the left and society at large, and it wasn't the prerogative of a dominant white movement to dictate to it what form it should take. This was a major resolution at a small political convention in 1948, but when it was read by uh, Malcolm X uh, as a young man, he was stunned with the brilliance, and you could see the continuity between that, that speech uh, and, his, uh, and, and uh, the rise of black power. Uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is the way in which uh, working people in these great industrial unions were by the mid-1940s faced with a new bureaucracy made up of communists in part, they wouldn't be there very long, and others who uh, wanted to uh, take away the impulse from below that had made industrial unions possible mm -hmm. from the late 30s onward. They wanted to repress that surge of, of struggle from below. And thanks to the uh, Second World War, all the economic pressures to conform to the victory of the war, and then thanks to McCarthyism, they succeeded in pushing it down. But James always believed it was possible for workers to rise up against that. And indeed, Black workers in particular were doing so against automation in the United Auto Workers, led by the great liberal Walter Ruther, and so forth and so forth. Uh, so he saw that. But uh, he also uh, had these, and expressed through his political group, which was no more than 100 people, these various stunning ideas, stunning for their early sensibility, uh, women's liberation, in part because his two main collaborators were Grace Lee Boggs and uh, and Ryadonovskaya, who were sharp uh, and impressive and made up the only left group that had female leadership, two women plus himself. But there was a wider view. Uh, they published a pamphlet in 1952 or 53 called Artie Cuts Out, which was about the teen rebellion. And the rest of the left was like, didn't know what to do with teen rebellion. Uh, so in this way, uh, and a number of others, that James's followers were able to see and, and anticipate the social movements of the 1960s mm -hmm. without, however, being able to do much about it since there were so few of them and the group itself was uh, in fragmentation. So it, it, it was an extremely far-sighted perspective to, to which I guess I would add that he, while he's on Ellis Island waiting to be thrown out of the United States at large, he writes a book about Moby Dick, uh, a subject that not many people have been written about very well, at least in 1950. Mm -hmm. And he looks at uh, Ahab, uh, the anti-hero of Moby Dick, and he says this is the ruler of any place in the world. It could be Stalin, it could be Truman, uh, it could be Churchill or someone else who has no longer a vision of anything, is chasing this wild uh, white whale and might destroy the world in the process. Uh, a pretty good vision, but on the other hand, he says that the crew of the Pequod, the ship, is it's such a modern kind of thing to, to do what they were doing. At it's a factory, mm -hmm. and that the inhabitants have the capacity, if they can do it, to take over the ship and take over their own lives, which is more or less what he had been saying about the sugar workers in uh, uh, in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They were in an almost modern situation. They were the, producing the greatest wealth that Europe had ever seen, but they were running those plantations almost by themselves because there were so few whites. Mm -hmm. So 
they had the economic, social circumstances and socialization to take over their own situation. Uh, and uh, that's a metaphorical statement about working people at large uh, that uh, James continued to hold to the end of his life. He was sure the Hungarian Revolution proved it. He was sure that the uprising of of Polish solidarity proved it. Uh, it hasn't worked out. Uh, I'm not sure what he would do about post-industrialism, but he certainly would have a, a an interracial, cultural sort of vision of uh, how we might move from where we are. Well, it's one of the points I think that you make throughout and that people generally make is is the strength of James' writing itself as a, you know, as an artist, as a writer, uh, as much as anything else. I like to say, because he said it to me, uh, I said, do you, you regret giving up being a novelist? This novel, Mindy Alley, is really very skillfully written about Trinidadian life. And since the young protagonist is called Haynes, you can tell he's talking about himself. Mm -hmm. uh, did he regret it? And he said, I regret it, but I'm not sorry. Mm. Which is to say, he'd done his literary piece, and now he was going onward. Mm -hmm. One question I wanted to ask also, uh, you know, mentioning, I mean, constant throughout is the, the focus on uh, America and black America in, in trying to find, find a way forward for that group in particular uh, and trying to, I guess, find some kind of cognate with a, a peasant class or a working class um, that has to have some kind of analytical understanding of its situation. Although uh, I think James says throughout, you never know when things are just going to happen. Revolution explodes. Yes, that's right. right. Uh, that's right. Maybe giving too much credit <laughs> for that. Right. Uh, but uh, he was anticipating and then immediately seized on and, and clarified in ways that still seem to be remarkable. Uh, the merger of class, race, and gender hmm. toward the end of the 60s and the early 70s when a strike wave, the biggest since the mid-1940s, was underway. Uh, and uh, working people in many kinds of American jobs were revolting against their union leadership as much as they were revolting against the, their employer. Mm -hmm. It was a, a moment in which the upsurge uh, included many, many workplaces that hadn't been, had not been struck, struggled with before. Uh, including the post office, social service workers, and a whole bunch of other places that were now much more substantially female and non-white. Mm -hmm. And for James, uh, it was always it was always the lowest classes, those at the bottom, who would make the transformation of the whole society possible because they were carrying that society on their shoulders in a sense. And unlike the traditional Marxist view, which depended upon the industrial proletariat only, just about, James had a much wider view of uh, the, the uh, radical and revolutionary possibilities. Make life easy, make life easy on me. It's time for a break. This is Make Life Easy on Me by Lancelot Lane, another Trinidadian who has been called the founder of Rapso. Rapso music is an evolution of the Chantwell or Griot tradition of African music in the diaspora. It is called the poetry of Calypso and the power of the word in the rhythm of the word. When we return, we'll be joined by Paul LeBlanc, who highlights C.L.R. James in his book, Left Americana. Stay with us for more on the legacy of CLR James when Interchange returns on WFHB. People want understanding 
and respect. Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and a sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. The children, the women, the men, save them, or is a waste. Welcome back. You're listening to The Legacy of C.L.R. James on Interchange. Our guest for this segment is Paul LeBlanc, a professor of history at La Roche College in Pittsburgh. LeBlanc charts the intellectual course for us, showing the importance of Marx and Trotsky in James's work. He also details the era's socialist factionalism. Along with Raya Donyuskaya and Grace Lee Boggs, James was a founder of the Johnson Forest Tendency, a radical left tendency in the United States that focused on black activism and held that the Soviet Union under Stalin was state capitalist, not a bureaucratic collective. Untreated like people. You hear me, man? Now, Trotsky's kind of a, a mythical figure to many of us in both uh, maybe a good and a bad way, a demon on one end. Um, I'm not quite sure I'd call him an angel on the other end, but uh, um, there's perhaps some way in which Russians of uh, that era are uh, mythical in many ways, even though we see pictures of them and understand them as historical actors and have uh, tome after tome of their writings. Uh, they're, they're almost unreal, even though uh, Trotsky's History of the, the Russian Revolution translated by Max Eastman, argued with Max Eastman over translation. Max Eastman argued with, with Trotsky over the translation. Um, but uh, but these are real people, real figures, and they have real influence in a very physical, uh, material way as well. And, and, and James uh, is someone also who knew Trotsky, right? Argued with Trotsky, had sense of who Trotsky was. Yes, very much. Uh, he argued with Trotsky. He was influenced uh, very positively by Trotsky. Trotsky was influenced by him. There was a, a genuine uh, a rapport that the two had. Uh, he visited Trotsky uh, when Trotsky was exiled in, Me- in Mexico. Uh, uh, Trotsky, of course, was uh, a prime uh, opponent of the Stalin dictatorship in uh, the Soviet Union. And uh, uh, and opposing that uh, in a way that James agreed with uh, up to a point, uh, and they agreed on many things and had some differences, but at least initially the differences were uh, very creative and fruitful. Hmm. Um, well, they go uh, they go separate ways. There, is there an easy? I'm I'm not going to ask you to do do this too easily, but is there a fairly easy way to to demonstrate? The, the direction James went in or the, uh, the way he, he moved against Trotsky in some way? Well, there were, uh, I think, a couple of uh, issues um, that were particularly important. Um, 
One is uh, James and some other members of the Trotskyist movement in the United States and other countries uh, disagreed with Trotsky's analysis of the Soviet Union. They all agreed that the Stalin dictatorship should be overthrown by a, uh, a revolution of the workers and peasants in order to establish a real socialism uh, in, uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, they all agreed that that actual socialism needed to be established on an international basis. There were many areas of agreement. But uh, James came to the opinion, and, and some others as well, that uh, the Soviet Union uh, was had become a new form of class society. Uh, James called it state capitalism and saw it as no better than uh, the regular kind of capitalism, um, whereas Trotsky uh, believed that there were still some positive uh, things that uh, existed in the Soviet Union thanks to the revolution. So there was uh, a very serious difference uh, in 1939 uh, when you had the Hitler-Stalin pact and various other things leading up to the Second World War. Mm. Uh, another uh, thing in regard to James, and it's a complicated thing, uh, he was a very creative thinker, and he uh, gathered around, and very charismatic uh, individual, and he gathered around himself uh, a, a small grouping of people that came to be known as the Johnson Forest Tendency. And they developed all kinds of very creative, innovative ideas on uh, society and history and so forth uh, that weren't inconsistent with Trotsky's view, but they were inconsistent with uh, the more uh, what seemed to them mundane uh, views and attitudes of some people in the uh, U.S. Trotskyist movement. Mm. So they were frustrated with that, and eventually they broke not simply from Trotsky, but from uh, the various Trot Trotskyist organizations that they had affiliated with. Mm. Uh, now, at the same time, uh, they were a small group, so they weren't able to be more effective, particularly more effective on a practical level, than uh, the other groups that they were breaking from. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Paul uh, Buell makes this point as well. The the trying to understand the size of these groups is is one thing. I think we should we should probably point out uh, this, as you say, small group. Um, what do you mean by small? Well, the Socialist Workers Party uh, before the split had like uh, two thousand members, roughly, uh, plus a a milieu, a periphery, uh, an influence that was larger than that. Mm -hmm. Um, when the split came, uh, the uh, folks who were in agreement with Trotsky were a slight majority, um, and uh, and then both of the the different groups grew, uh, but not more than fifteen hundred uh, at most. And James's group, the Johnson Forest Tendency, they were about fifty people, sixty people. When they broke off and became a separate group. They were never more than a hundred people. Mm. So in any event, those are the relative sizes. Very small then. Very small right, indeed. Right. I'm Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show is on the legacy of CLR James. My guest for this segment is Paul LeBlanc, who includes James as an influential thinker in his book Left Americana, the radical heart of US history. Now, behind uh, this, behind Trotsky even, um, is Marx uh, and, and Marx's importance to James as well. Can you sketch that a little bit? Well, James uh, 
in part because of his uh, own experiences and in part because of the brilliance of Marx, uh, embraced uh, the ideas of Marx, the approach of Marx, uh, 100%. He was, it could be argued, he was relatively uncritical of Marx, but he had a very intelligent appreciation of Marx's ideas, and that was his starting point, mm -hmm. uh, always. Um, and yet he did very creative things with that. Um, you know, uh, Marxism, it could be argued, necessarily has to be an open system because it's dealing with a changing reality, changing social reality. Uh, history doesn't stop in, when Marx dies. History continues to flow onward. And James had a very uh, uh, poignant uh, understanding of that fact uh, and a sense of the the uh, changes that had to be grappled with using Marx's method. That's how he saw it. Um, so one can't really understand James, and James would be the first to insist this, one can't understand James if one doesn't have some understanding of Marx. Mm. So there's um, a translation that the, was it Grace Lee Boggs who, who translated the 1844 Economic and Philosophic Manuscripts as part of that Johnson Forest tendency? Yes, the Johnson Forest tendency was ahead of its time intellectually, uh, theoretically, in all kinds of ways. And they came out with the first English translation of Marx's Economic and Philosophical Manuscripts. Uh, and they utilized it um, in in their own. They utilized that approach in their own thinking. They were almost always thinking outside the box, uh, but in a way that they felt was consistent with Marx's writings, and uh, and they uh, played an important role in Marx's scholarship in helping to retrieve, for example, exactly what you said, the uh, the Paris manuscripts of 1844. Mm. So this is a um, a group that we can consider, in, in, maybe at best in retrospect, but try to understand them as influential in an in a scholarly way, in an academic way, in a theoretical way. But these were activists also, right? Absolutely, they were activists also, and they insisted on the interconnection of. Uh, history of theory with practical activity of common or ordinary everyday people in the here and now and the struggles of the past uh, they saw as interweaving with the struggles of the present and the struggles that they anticipated for the future and they came up James came up with a, an especially important uh, insight into the situation of African Americans uh, and the African American struggle which became quite influential, far beyond the uh, confines of the uh, uh, socialist movement and the Trotskyist movement. And what was that insight? Well, n socialists up to that point, and here, by the way, it's interesting, he was in agreement with Trotsky. He collaborated with Trotsky in developing this conceptualization that uh, uh, was different from the ideas of many American socialists and many American Marxists before that, uh, which was, well, what you need to do is, of course, eliminate racism along with the exploitation of the workers and the oppression of women and so forth and so on. Uh, but what was needed was socialism in order to eliminate those problems. So uh, blacks and whites and men and women should all unite in the socialist working class movement 
to bring about socialism, and then these problems would be resolved. Uh, and James understood, and he wasn't the only person who understood, but he was part of a small number of people who understood, and he brilliantly articulated it, that various forms of oppression have their own dynamics, uh, and in particular, uh, racism in the United States, anti-black racism, uh, couldn't be subordinated to any other struggle and had to be led by African-Americans themselves, uh, and that this would be a central part of a radicalization in the United States, a radicalization of the uh, working class. It couldn't be something that would wait for later. It was part of the dynamic of change in the here and now. And when we look at this, he was uh, articulating these things in the late 1930s and in the 1940s. And when we look at what happened in the 1950s and 1960s, both when uh, we see uh, Martin Luther King uh, leading a, uh, an African-American movement with a black leadership uh, and Malcolm X, who was a black nationalist, we see in different ways reflections of the kinds of things that uh, James was pointing out decades before. Is James still uh, what you would call an essential figure for the, that particular kind of movement uh, today? I think so. I mean, not everyone understands or, or not, not everyone is aware of James, mm -hmm. or reading, but uh, his ideas uh, permeate much of the thinking uh, that have been part of the civil rights movement and the understanding of racism uh, and black liberation in the United States. And so people would be well served by taking a look specifically at what James wrote, uh, and they'll find uh, echoes of uh, things that they've already been thinking about and hearing about. Hmm. Well, a, a, I asked Paul Buell uh, um, about a favorite book or what he thought what might be a good starting point. He mentioned the Black Jacobins, and um, uh, obviously this had some model in Trotsky's history of the Russian Revolution. Uh, is there something else that you would you would say to our listeners to you know to start with, or to think this is uh, this is a place you can be begin with James and really start to understand his importance? Well. Uh, Black Jacobins is a wonderful book. It is a classic, and it shows, uh, uh, you know, the power of his methodology and his thinking, and and his style of writing is is wonderful, and uh, uh, and so on. Um, some of his articles, some of his essays, uh, are uh, also very interesting and ahead of their time. Uh, and there are various collections of his articles and essays, uh, w uh, one fine collection edited by Anna Grimshaw. Uh, Scott McLame and I have uh, put out uh, some volumes of his writings also. So some of his short writings, I think, are worth engaging with also. Uh, and black Jacobins, absolutely. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier, uh, obviously, his insight into, quote-unquote, the Negro question. He has particular essays on this, this subject, subject as well, right? Oh, yes. In, in the, uh, uh, a lot of stuff mm. on, on uh, and pioneering stuff on African-American history and uh, black history internationally. Uh, he was uh, connected with uh, various people in the Pan-African movement, uh, Kwame Nkrumah and Jomo Kenyatta, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, uh, George Padmore, and so forth. So he played a pioneering role in educating about 
uh, African and African, as well as African American history, uh, and showed that it was central to world history. It was a central element in world history. Uh, historians up to that point had tended to marginalize it. Well, most historians were sort of well-to-do white guys, and he brought in a whole new dynamic, uh, showing. You can see it in Black Jacobins. If you want to understand the French Revolution, if you want to understand uh, Napoleon, one of the things you have to do is look at Haiti, among other uh, places, and the black struggle in Haiti, which was very much uh, influenced by those things, but also uh, impacted on them powerfully. Mm. So uh, he, uh, you can find those kinds of things in various essays that he wrote. He also dealt with issues of popular culture that uh, many intellectuals shrugged off as uh, nonsense. He was a sports writer. He was interested in novels, including pulp fiction and comic books and movies and music and so forth as um, uh, demonstrating, uh, you know, various aspects of uh, popular consciousness and mass consciousness uh, and not just in a negative way. Uh, so he's a very interesting thinker in all kinds of ways. Mm. Now, uh, as we note, James is from Trinidad. Is there a way in which being a West Indian or being from Trinidad really marks his his character, his style, his his own sense of of what it means to be a person of color in the West, in particular? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question, and it's a key to James. I think um, he was uh, in Trinidad. He was uh, educated. He was his uh, father was an educator, and he was he went through the school system there and received sort of a classical British uh, education uh, and identified with European culture profoundly. But he was an outsider as uh, a colonial subject and as an oppressed uh, member of an oppressed uh, racial group. Um, so this gave his thinking a critical edge. It helped him to emphasize and to understand that things that were seen as marginal were really not marginal. They were essential to understanding the system, uh, you know, in the world, the system of wealth and power in the world, places like Trinidad, other colonies, uh, the, uh, colored peoples of the various continents who made up the majority of people. He emphasized, you've got to look at the, them and understand them in order to understand what's going on in Europe and the United States. Um, so, uh, that's, uh, these are qualities you can find in his essays, in his talks. Uh, it's in Black Jacobins too, of course. Mm. Good and bad that defied the craze these days is ghetto. Now you tell me where we doing with ghetto. The answer is simply we don't know what I get. It's time is. for another break. This is Lancelot Lane with Yo Take It Sore from 1976. When Interchange returns, we'll be joined by Lawrence Ware, co-editor with Paul Buell of the graphic novelette, The Young C.L.R. James. Stay with us. Like if thing ain't hard enough, you're trying to make thing more up. What frustration send you off? You think it's soft in a ghetto? A ghetto has to do with a certain physical environment and negative attitude. Support for Interchange comes from Limestone Post, an independent online magazine covering Bloomington and the surrounding areas, in-depth stories about the arts, environment, social issues, and more. 
You can discover Limestone Post articles and learn more about the upcoming print edition, a commemorative art magazine dedicated to local history and a sense of place, at limestonepost.com. Writers with a voice, photographers with a vision. Support for Interchange comes from the Uptown Cafe, established in 1976, located at 102 East Kirkwood Avenue, serving breakfast, lunch, and dinner, as well as wine, beer, spirits, and cocktails. More information is available online at the-uptowncafe.com. Who you gonna blame when they end up in the hands of some lawless lawman because of your neglect? When you cultivate ghetto attitudes, more women live with weaknesses in men because less men seem able to develop the strength to be men in the first place. Look, man, if we must save the country... Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. For our final segment on the legacy of CLR James, we're joined by Lawrence Ware, a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Oklahoma and co-editor of the graphic novelette The Young CLR James. Law Ware shares with us a personal response to James as an exemplar of the black intellectual, proof to Ware that he could follow that path also. Of course, Ware notes, James isn't perfect, showing little regard for women in his work, even though women were his greatest collaborators. Can you tell me when you first encountered the work of C.L.R. James? I was first exposed to C.R.L.R. James when I was in graduate school for philosophy at Oklahoma State University. I had a professor here, Mike Thompson, who was kind of central in introducing me to uh, just who he was. I was taking a class, a really independent study on philosophy and race. And so he just kind of said, hey, this is a book that you need to be aware of. It's called, you know, The Black Jacobians. I was like, okay, well, let me check it out. And what I discovered is that there's this this history here about African-Americans fighting against white colonialism and that they did so in a very organized and central kind of way. And I was also, also taken aback by the quality of the writing that C.L.R. James was kind of doing. And I did a little uh, research into him and discovered you know, he wasn't a Ph.D. Uh, he wrote widely about a number of different topics from sports to philosophical thought to history uh, and just kind of became someone that I was really taken by and really kind of wanted to model who I was and who I was developing into as a thinker and a writer after. And so that was kind of my first time being introduced to this intellectual juggernaut that kind of later began to really define who I was as a thinker. Hmm. Do you have a, a sense that that aesthetic quality was what may have really captured you at first, or do you think it was the politics of it? More of the politics. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he, he, he's certainly a, a really good writer, but just being completely honest, I up until that time, I mean, I knew that there were black intellectuals who mm-hmm. were out there, but I really just being reared in a Western culture and being exposed to mainly white thinkers and writers, I really hadn't been exposed to much outside of King and maybe a little bit of Du Bois and a little bit of Richie Washington. And so to to read someone who is, in fact, not American, but yet nevertheless doing this rigorous work intrigued me. 
uh, and it made me want to know more and, and read more by him and by other black thinkers. Uh, and so really it was both just the fact that I just kind of identified with him as just a black man. Uh, and then the fact that he was just doing this rigorous work with these incredible ideas and, and grounding it in this intellectual rigor that I really was attracted to. Hmm. You mentioned black intellectuals there. I'll also confess being reared in the same education, I suppose, that it, it's a rarity, uh, as you say already, outside of Dr. King, uh, Malcolm X, maybe, if, you, right. if you're in the right kind of program, I suppose, or if you think to educate yourself, it might be one of the first books you go to, the autobiography. Um, But beyond that, you'd be, uh, I think, hard pressed to really to move beyond that in terms of formal education, perhaps, you know, even in general education. We read Frederick Douglass, I suppose. You might hear about uh, Du Bois, but I doubt it even. Right. I hope they're reading Souls of Black Folks, Mm -hmm. but, you know, I guess I wouldn't be surprised if they're not. I I grew up a long time wondering if I could even do philosophy because I looked around and I didn't see a lot of black folks doing philosophy. Mm. Um, and, and I looked at the people that I was assigned to read and I began to wonder, you know, is this something that I as a black person can contribute to? Like, like where is my intellectual tradition? Mm. Uh, where do I fit in? Because I didn't fit in with these these white thinkers and these white writers. And I wasn't preoccupied with the things. Reading him led me to read other individuals, you know, Bell Hooks and Angela Davis and a number of other black folks. And I begin to realize that there's this rich intellectual history that I'm just not being taught by, quote unquote, established you know, curriculum. And so, yeah, reading him kind of opened my eyes and opened the door. And while reading that text, reading him was not necessarily the life changer. Reading Du Bois was. Hmm. Uh, but reading him was kind of the gateway. So, you know, they talk about marijuana being like a gateway drug. <laughs> well, well, C.L.R. James was my gateway drug into black intellectualism. <laughs> and so I'm very thankful that I was able to kind of be exposed to him and then in turn have this opportunity to try to introduce him to other people so that he can, you know, in the same way that he was for me, be their gateway drug into mm-hmm. black intellectualism. You talk about exposing him to other readers. You're talking about the graphic novelette that you worked on with Paul Buell? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So the Young CLR James is a text that is meant to introduce uh, young black people to this thinker. And if they're like me right now, there's this huge surge of attention when it comes to black comic books and black graphic novels with things like the Harlem Hellfighters and, of course, Black Panther being the cultural juggernaut that it is. And, and I wrote about it for The New York Times, you know, so I wanted to kind of seize upon this wave that I kind of saw happening. And so we began to work on the young CLR James. And, and my hope was that young black people who read comic books like I did would kind of latch onto it and be intrigued by it and hopefully read it and uh, want to know more about him because we kind of we focus on him as a young man and as he's a developing intellectual. Uh, and then once he's on the cusp of becoming, you know, capital letters CLR James, it's kind of right around the time when it ends with a coda about music. But nevertheless, I was hoping that people would be intrigued by him and want to know more about him. Uh, and hopefully that that happens. I really hope it does. Hmm. Now, you say uh, you did mention that you wrote a piece in The New York Times about the Black Panther movie. Do you have a sense uh, how CLR James might have reviewed the film? Oh, man, you're asking me to go back and kind of put words in his mouth. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm afraid to do that, but I do think that he would have been fascinated by Wakanda and Wakanda's isolationism because, 
you know, if you do a close reading of, you know, the, the black Jacobians, you sense that there's something going on in him that is aspirational about the possibility of a black state. And so I, I do think that this would have been fascinated by the character of Eric Killmonger as played by Michael B. Jordan and is envisioned in the film by Ryan Coogler, um, because what he's articulating is a form of black nationalism that certainly has a pedigree in the writing of T.L.R. James. like you, you see it there, although he does not go as far as Eric Killmonger goes. But you do see echoes of James in much of what Eric Killmonger says. Hmm. Uh, black nationalism in particular. Oh, without question. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was one of the things I noticed in reading Paul's book, uh, you know, trying to understand how all these things come out of a contextual world in which it's hard to kind of find your way back to, I suppose, right? Uh, the, the 30s, the Depression, the, the yeah. war, to try to understand black nationalist movements, Marcus Garvey, to try to, even as C.L.R. James, who is not an American, you know, who is uh, from Trinidad and is, I think at some point he calls himself more of an Englishman in terms of even right. his, his uh, education and his thinking. But for him to say black Americans to decide what black Americans want, want to do and be. Absolutely. And one of the things that really kind of that I think about a lot when it comes to C.L.R. James is that while he is Trinidad and, and he was certainly not American in his education and, and in his thinking in some ways, uh, he's still a black man that is vis-a-vis white supremacy mm-hmm. uh, and that is reared in this white supremacist kind of intellectual context, certainly when he gets a little older. It is just difficult to kind of put your mind in that framework of you know the 1930s and the early 1900s and kind of understanding that. But there are some things that remain constant from then until now. And that is the persistent intellectual, social, economic violence of anti-blackness. There is this pervasive sense of the need for black people to, on the one hand, love themselves, but also to organize in a meaningful kind of way. You know, the need to kind of engage in anti-colonial work as, you know, he was a member of the Beacon Group when he was uh, writing for Beacon Magazine. And so there's this notion that while things are, in fact, changing in in many ways, there is this persistent thread of oppressive ideology and oppressive activities that's going on that makes his work as relevant now as it has ever been. Hmm. Yeah, I was going to press into the Black Lives Matter and even before that, obviously, the Black Power Movement and how James feeds into those things. He certainly does. And, and whether or not people in the Black Lives Matter movement have read James, they are certainly people who are in his lineage, you know, who are indebted to his thoughts, because they probably see themselves as more in line with like the Black Power movement and come, coming out of the Black Panthers and inspired by Malcolm X. And that may be true, but whether they know it or not, they are in, indebted to him and to his work, particularly with the Black Jacobians and his notions of economic policy. Mm-hmm. Now, it's one of those things, again, that, that we tread lightly around here, and, and by here I mean the, the U.S., uh, in terms of recognizing the lineage of James as a Marxist, a Leninist, a Trotskyist, whichever period you know he's working through at the time. These are words that we still steer clear for, <laughs> steer clear yeah. of in this country, yeah. right? Uh, but these are the writers, the thinkers on revolution and economic situations, uh, dialectical materialism. These are the, the thinkers that put James in his revolutionary space. There's this push now to kind of forget the past and forget these 
dangerous ideas almost. You know, like there's just like this danger associated with people who think this way. Although I think that one of the good things about social media is that it's a very democratizing space. And so while there are certain kinds of things that are taboo and, and off limits, it seems like in certain kind of mainstream spaces that you can go online and find that there's this kind of culture uh, and there's this group of people who think very similarly to you. And so, you know, I'm, I, I do think that, that it's important for us not to forget people like CLR James and to um, not be afraid of him and his thoughts. Uh, and, and even further, maybe to understand that maybe there are people out there who still think this way. I know I certainly do. Mm -hmm. Other people do. And so it's important for us to kind of reckon with that and really wrestle with what that means for us and what we can learn from them. What are the things that we want to hold on to? And what are the things that we want to get rid of? You know, sir, while I love CLR James, I'm very well aware that he was a patriarchal thinker. And so we might want to deal with it. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask also in terms of the notion of intersectionalism now, which is while it it, it sort of seems to be new, certainly not a, a new idea, how we operate together to try to understand the structures that affect us all. Uh, You want to talk a little bit about intersectionalism and CLR James? The thing is that when it comes to CLR James, I wish that he had been more intersectional. Mm. That's that's what I could say. He doesn't escape being patriarchal in many ways. Mm -hmm. And I think that black women have always been doing intersectional work. I mean, that, that is fundamentally what they have always been doing. They had no choice but to do that. It's just that we now have a name for it and now men have caught on to it. Mm -hmm. And so now it's it's a big thing. Uh, Thinking more about gender outside of just in economic terms, but also thinking about gender in and of itself. And one of the unique things that women, particularly black women, deal with that are the result of gender, not necessarily only the result of economics. And so, yes, I mean, if, if we're going to talk about our heroes, we have to be honest and be willing to critique them as well and say these are the things that they could have done better. Mm-hmm. But I do think that he has a lot there that, uh, you know, women's movements can can latch on to and can uh, expand and develop a little bit more. Well, obviously, even if he was the central figure of groups, uh, it seems like many, many of his followers who became their own sorts of strong leaders as well were women in particular, Certainly. Grace Lee. and uh, Yeah, kind of- I mean, you know, he definitely associates with them. But if I read it through, through today's lens, I mean, his work is patriarchal. It just mm-hmm. is. Uh, even if he may have a, had strong associations with women, doesn't you know doesn't excuse him. Um, and so, uh, yeah, he, he certainly had women who he associated with and he who he worked with uh, closely. But you know, if I'm being honest, you know, as a as a person who you know is trying myself to kind of incorporate more voices of Black women in the work that I do and kind of be less patriarchal. I mean, it's just there. It's just mm-hmm. and and it's it's hard to to be living when he's living, writing when he's writing, and it not be there. Uh, and so it's it's better for us to kind of re- to kind of reckon with it and deal with it. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is on the peripatetic revolutionary and scholar C.L.R. James. Our guest for this segment is Law Ware, a professor in the Department of Philosophy at the University of Oklahoma and co-editor of the graphic novelette, The Young C.L.R. James. You mentioned uh, black intellectuals earlier, and and obviously C.L.R. James is one, W.B. Du Bois we talked about. Are there others uh, in particular? You mentioned uh, Bell Hooks and Angela Davis that that you feel need to be more widely read and discussed and need to be brought into mainstream thinking? I think that Alan Locke is underappreciated, a a black philosopher who was teaching at uh, Howard University. There was recently a book that came out 
about him that I was very happy to see. You know, although many people know about Lorraine Hansberry Mm -hmm. and they know about A Raisin in the Sun, they don't really fully know her other work. Hmm. And, and Lorraine Hansberry was a towering intellectual, I would argue, very, very important thinker. And recently, a, a good friend of mine, uh, Imani Perry, wrote a book about Lorraine Hansberry, which I think is a, is a must read, a really, really good text. And then, of course, you have people like Ida B. Wells that uh, you know, recently the New York Times did like an uh, obituary for her because when she died, they didn't you know do much work about her. Hmm. Uh, you know, She's an important writer doing some really important work as relates to the Van guard of black female journalistic behavior. Then contemporaneously, there's Tommy Shelby, there's Afro-pessimism that I don't really buy into, but I do think it's worth wrestling with. Oh, man, I can go on and on and on about it. <laughs> well, good. You mentioned sure. earlier that uh, Du Bois was a, a life changer for you. What, what yeah. particularly about that? Oh, man, uh, Du Bois in his uh, Souls of Black Folks, the first chapter of it is called Up Our Spiritual Strivings. And when I read that text and he talks about double consciousness, he just talks about blackness in a way that was just eye-opening for me. He talks about it in a way where he situates it in the phenomenology of the everyday, right? You know, what it feels like to be a black person in America on a day-to-day basis. But then he brings in a Hegelian kind of critique to it and begins to expand it in a black existential kind of way, kind of laying the groundwork for black existentialism that really just let me know that that my day-to-day experience, number one, had been explored philosophically, but two, that there's still more there to explore. Mm. And then just his writing style, like Du Bois is just a, he's a masterful writer, just an unbelievable writer. And it just got me going into thinking about myself as a black person that's, that could be an intellectual and just showed me that that was possible. It opened a, it opened my eyes to what was possible because for so many years up until that time, I was trying to be like white folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and Du Bois let me know that, you know what, you can be black and you can be an intellectual. And here's the way to do it. And so that that kind of changed my life and got me opening my eyes even further beyond C.L.R. James and beyond Du Bois uh, to really kind of take seriously what it means to be a scholar and what it means to be a black writer beyond like writing fiction. Like I felt the ground shifting beneath my feet. That's our show. We'll close with Why Not? Another from Lancelot Lane. This is Chant off of Jumbie Bees. Thanks to our three guests, Paul Buell, Paula Blanc, and Lawrence Ware, for joining us today to discuss the important legacy of C.L.R. James and helping us find a usable past in his work. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon and Bryce Martin edited tonight's program. Our executive producer is Wes Martin. Stay tuned for The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.